And now our final speaker, but absolutely um, great save up of wonderment for the end is Justine Picardy, who has written many books. Um, one of her bestsellers was about Coco Chanel, which was called The Legend and Her Life. But her most recent book is about another equally famous name, Miss Dior, A Story of Courage and Couture. This is a fantastically beautifully illustrated book. It reads like a thriller. It's a story that Justine has spent a long time researching, and I know she has traced her steps through the war, through 20th century France, and pulled together a quite astonishing tale of a very, very remarkable and somewhat unknown person who we now know a great deal more about. So Justine, welcome from Norfolk, where I know you are, because I've been following your Twitter account during lockdown, which has been amazingly engaging. So thank you very much. And um, I'd like to say to everyone to make sure that they notice what Justine is wearing because it is old classic Dior. And uh, I hazarded that it might be vintage, but I was knocked back on that, but it's old and it's extremely beautiful. Welcome. Hello, everybody. It's really lovely to be here. The story that I'm going to tell you tonight um, started in many years ago when I was invited to look in the Dior archives. And as Rosie said, my, my last book was a biography of Coco Chanel. And when I was invited to look in the Dior archives, I thought that perhaps my next book would be a biography of Christian Dior, the great couturier who really changed the way that women looked in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. But as I searched through the archives and talked to archivists, suddenly, several years after I began, I was struck by the story, in a sense, and I'm saying this because of, of John's talk, of a ghost who had been completely forgotten. And this is Christian Dior's younger sister, Catherine Dior, who was his best friend, who was the woman he loved most in the world, and who had been a heroine of the French resistance during the Second World War and had been deported to Ravensbrück concentration camp. And what struck me was that given how famous Christian Dior was and remains, it's one of his name is still synonymous with with luxury, with beauty, with femininity. How was it that his younger sister had been entirely forgotten? So the story really starts in a garden, which was the garden where Christian and Catherine grew up. They lived in Normandy. Christian was born in 1905. Catherine, who you see in this picture as the little girl in the front row between her parents was born in 1917 and there were five children but what Christian and Catherine shared was a love of gardening their mother was a rather remote figure but the way to her heart was through her love of gardening their father had inherited a very successful family business which um, was that of fertilizer but in the terrible aftermath of first the First World War and then the glo first global flu pandemic and then the Wall Street crash, the Dior family lost 
so much. One son who'd fought in the First World War developed shell shock, another developed schizophrenia, their mother died of septicemia, and their father lost everything in the aftermath of the Wall Street crash. And Christian and Catherine both had to earn a living. And Christian taught himself to draw. He became a fashion illustrator. And as soon as he was able, he asked Catherine to come and live with him in Paris, where they shared a tiny little, first of all, a room together and then an apartment. And she got a job, which he found her working, selling accessories and hats and gloves in a maison de mode. And he was forging an early career as a, as a fashion illustrator and a freelance designer. And then comes the outbreak of the Second World War. And they both retreat to Provence, where their father was living in a little farmhouse. And by the end of, of 1941, Christian made the difficult decision to, to return to occupied Paris, and he got a job for a couturier called Lucien Lelong. And Catherine joins the French resistance. This happens because she undertakes her first act of resistance by going in search of a radio. And by buying a radio, it was to listen to the banned broadcasts of General de Gaulle. And that alone was enough to risk imprisonment. But the man that supplies her with the radio is, a, is an early member of the French resistance called Hervé de Charbonnery. And he recruits her for his resistance network, which was called F2, and reported into both British and Polish intelligence in London. It had been started by two Polish intelligence officers originally. And it was, they were joined, um, they were helped by SOE agents who'd been parachuted into to France. And Catherine proved herself to be a very brave and resourceful member of the French resistance. First of all, operating in the south of France along the Mediterranean coast. And then at the beginning of 1944, as the Gestapo were closing in on the resistance, her resistance network in the south, she was sent to Paris, to the heart of occupied France. And she starts living again with her brother Christian, who gives his tacit support to the resistance by sheltering her and sheltering other members of her resistance network. So things become more and more dangerous with D-Day, with the Allies landing in June 1944. And as the Allies fight their way towards Paris, the resistance networks are doing more and more and more, but their lives are becoming more and more endangered. And in July, early July 1944, Catherine, like others in her network, is betrayed by a French collaborator. And she was arrested by a unit that was known as the Rue de la Pompe Gestapo. And she was taken to Rue de la Pompe in the heart of bourgeois Paris, where she was tortured by Frenchmen, although the unit was run by Germans. And she didn't give away a single name or piece of information. And as a consequence, she saved the life of her brother, her best friend, Hervé, who was her lover, his family, and everybody else in her resistance network. But she was tortured over 
two days and then sent to a French prison on the outskirts of Paris and then an internment camp. And then in August, just days before the liberation of Paris, she was deported to Germany on a train with 400 other women and about 2000 men on the final train out of Paris of deportees. The men were sent to Buchenwald concentration camp and she was sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp, which was Hitler's only camp for women. In order to research the book, I had spent days, you know, hours, months actually, looking in the archives of, of the French resistance, the Dior archives, archives of British intelligence. But I then had to follow in Catherine's footsteps to Ravensbrück. And I felt really scared and, and terrified about going to such a dark place. It's a place that very, very few people visit. It's, it's not like the other camps, most famously Auschwitz, which is a place of pilgrimage for many. I went to Ravensbrück twice to go through the archives there. And on each occasion, I was practically the only person there. But what I found was incredibly moving and unexpected in that there were, there were symbols and mementos and talismans of resistance there and in the three subsequent camps that Catherine was moved to. She was part of what was, was called extermination through labor. There, there was a gas chamber at Ravensbrook, but she and the majority of the other female prisoners were there to be worked to death. Miraculously, in Ravensbrook, I found a rose garden and roses were tremendously important to Christian and Catherine Dior. Their, their mother had loved roses, they had learned to grow roses. Their father's farm in Provence was in the midst of the rose growing area. And there at Ravensbrook, there is a rose garden that was planted after the end of the war by survivors in, in memory of, of the people that had died there, their sisters, their best friends, their mothers, their daughters. And the rose that grows at Ravensbrook that was bred by a French woman to survive these very, very harsh winters is called resurrection. And Catherine, having miraculously survived, returned to Paris in May 1945, the end of May 1945. And her return is a kind of resurrection. And her brother was there to meet her at the train station and he didn't recognize her. her. Her head had been shaved. She was so emaciated. She was unrecognizable as the beautiful young woman who had had left, um, who had who'd been seized. And, and there's something about her return which represents something very powerful for Christian. Catherine recovers that summer in Provence, surrounded by the rose fields that she, she loved so well. And then she returns to Paris to live with Christiane again that autumn. And she becomes a dealer in cut flowers in the flower market in Paris. But at the same time, she also starts tending 
her own rose fields in Provence. And it is at this moment that Christian takes the decision to create a perfume that he names Mistyor in tribute to Catherine. He says that he wants to create the perfume of love. And Mistyor, its, its essential ingredient is roses. And these are roses that Catherine herself goes on to grow. She grows the roses that are used in Mistyor. It is also flowers that form the inspiration for Christian's first collection, which is famously called the New Look. But in fact, what he'd called it was La Carole, which takes its name from the corolla, uh, the, the flower, the inner flower and the petals around it. And Catherine, his beloved younger sister, is literally the flower woman of this creation. She is growing roses, she's growing jasmine, she's also dealing in cut flowers, and yet her story is forgotten. There's many complicated reasons for this. Many, in fact, the majority of the surviving women of Ravensbrook, their stories are forgotten. Those of them who wrote diaries or memoirs or books found that nobody wanted to publish them. Catherine and her comrades in the French resistance, her female comrades, discover that nobody really wants to talk to them. This is perhaps because of the widespread collaboration in France. Catherine, when she joined the resistance, was one of only 100,000 active members of the French resistance. And this is in a population of 40 million. So somehow for France to move forward at the end of the Second World War, you see, whether it's conscious or not, a decision to forget the stories of women like Catherine. Christian becomes the most famous Frenchman in the world. Mistyor, both the perfume and the couture dress that bears its name, which is covered in a thousand beautiful handmade flowers. Mistyor becomes the symbol of post-war femininity, of womanhood, this highly romanticized woman, but the woman who has inspired it is forgotten. After Christian's death in 1957, his untimely death of a heart attack, he makes Catherine in his will he calls her his moral heir, which is a very powerful phrase because Catherine and women like her were the moral compass for France. She protects his legacy. It's thanks to her that the Dior archives that I was able to consult are there because she kept all his drawings, all his illustrations. In every single of his couture collections, he made a piece for Catherine, all of which she kept and all of which are in the archives today. Catherine herself is forgotten, but she goes on growing roses and she lives until the age of 90. And she dies in June, in June, 2008. But her roses are still there. Her roses are still grown as the essential ingredient of Miss Dior. And she carries on growing those roses and those roses that have found a way for her to live life on her own terms as Catherine Dior, she never marries, are also the way for her 
to find a way to go on living after the terrible trauma of what she had suffered during the Second World War. So for me, she's a great heroine, a heroine of, of, that represents the fight for freedom for, for a woman to live life on her own terms. And I feel that in telling her story, I've also tried to tell the story of many other women in the resistance, many other women who were in Ravensbrück concentration camp with her, that in a sense, all of their stories that had been forgotten, I have tried to bring a life to life again in, in my book, Misty Orr. They are all, in a sense, part of Misty Orr very much so. And their voices that had been silenced, I bring together, I hope in a chorus in my book. So I hope you'll read it. I know I'm the last speaker and I have my eye on the clock. I'm sure everybody here um, wants to join me in saying thank you so much to 5 by 15 for inviting us. It's been a wonderful lineup of of speakers, I feel very privileged to have been part of it. And storytelling is part of what makes us human. The sharing of stories is, is what makes us human. So here's to storytelling, to sharing stories, to listening to stories, and here's to five by 15. Thank you so much. Thank you, Justine, that was fantastic. What a wonderful story, what a great thing to bring back to the world. I, I had no idea she lived to be, she lived till so recently too. And um, we've all had the Miss Dior. So that is a wonderful, wonderful tale and a lovely way to finish. As you say, stories are what it's all about. So it only remains for me to say a really big thank you to everyone who's spoken tonight, to Safraz Manzor, to Lara Malcolm, to Justine Piketty, John Lanchester, and of course to Oliver Berkman. And as Oliver says, we only have 44,000 whatever, how many, 4,000 weeks left. Um, I don't think I have anything like as many as the rest of you, but on that note, I'm very glad that I've been able to hope to be with you all tonight and it's been quite wonderful. And thank you very much indeed and good night. <laughs>